You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, Shana. It's a pleasure to have you on Seek Up, the Yoga Inspiration Show again. Thanks for coming back and chatting with me. Thanks for having me. I had fun last time. I listen every time a new one comes out. So I'm a fan. Nice. Oh, that's so awesome. So good to hear. Well, I'd love to uh, dive into some of the things that you've been sharing recently on social media, which has been about the uh, intersections of accessibility and queuing and inclusivity. So one of the things that maybe we could use as a, t- as a starting point to the conversation is this idea of hierarchical and non-hierarchical language because I don't know if uh, students may have been, uh, if the students are listening, they may not be aware of the difference or the impact. So would you maybe tell, like share what the difference is between hierarchical language, non-hierarchical language, and kind of like why that's important in the yoga space? Sure. So hierarchical cueing means that we are setting this type of idea that certain poses are more important than others, that certain poses are a show of how hard we're working, um, and it's not really the case. So for instance, um, using things like, you know, if you want to work harder, do this. However, you can't look at someone and tell how hard they're working. Not really. It just depends on someone's body. So when you say stuff like, well, if you really want to work hard, then that person feels like, well, I am working hard and people are going to judge me because I'm not taking this option that the teacher says to take if you're trying to be a hard worker. And that makes me feel bad. Or it may make them push themselves in order to take that option and injure themselves and not listen to their internal voice. And that's what yoga is about. Yoga is about, well, the eight limbs, when we talk about Ashtanga, are there to help us find discernment and wisdom. And in order to find discernment and wisdom, we have to be able to listen to our own voice. So if we are using hierarchical cueing, it can push students away from listening to their own voice and instead trying to live up to some idea that they feel that their yoga teachers or the other other yoga students are are doing. So when I think about hierarchical cueing, like there really is no reason for a lot of the words that we use in yoga class. There really isn't. Like we can just say, you know, triangle, grab your big toe, lift your left hand up. Also, you could place your left hand on your left shin and lift your uh, your right hand on your right shin and lift your left arm up. That's all you have to say. There's no reason to say, if you want to make your triangle harder, grab your big toe. Or if you want to do the full expression of triangle, grab your big toe. Or if you're advanced, grab your big toe. (laughs) We can just say, grab your big toe with your right right piece on fingers, left arm up. Or you can also put your right hand on your shin Mm -hmm. and lift your left arm up. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. And it's just like these options that are given in the class and someone can make a choice and there's no value judgment or there's no idea that one is better than the other. They can just start to use their discernment. Mm -hmm. So as a teacher, we're teaching them how to use their discernment and how Mm -hmm. to make those choices without making them for them. That's so interesting. There's so much there. And what popped up into my mind was also uh, the the other version of offering a, a block or a holding the shin, for example, in triangle pose, if you're feeling stiff or if you're not as flexible. So then you're already, you know, calling calling someone out for for, for being quote unquote stiff. And then they might feel really kind of 
ostracized by that and even publicly humiliated by sort of being the, the odd one out. I mean, let's face it, none of us likes to be singled out. If everyone in the room is holding their toe, you're going to do everything in your power to try to hold your toe unless the teacher creates a, a really safe space to give you other alternatives. And we just don't want to, we don't, we don't want to be the one eyesore in the room that doesn't fit in with everyone else who's, you know, floating here and twisting there. And it's up to the teacher to make that, you know, make that space. And yes. I, sometimes I think in like in Ashtanga, it's sort of like this weird space because we were not taught any of these traditional cues. So, you know, the old traditional Ashtanga way is just like, hey, come inhale, do I exhale, take trikonasana. And it's sort of like, okay, like you might not even know that that was triangle pose. And then when we step as an Ashtanga practitioner myself, when I kind of stepped into the, uh, you know, uh, the yoga world of the United States of America, I, my eyes kind of at first popped out of my head because there were all, there was all of this intricate cueing about options and variations and the full expression and the, the, this expression and that expression. And, you know, for me, I think, gosh, so I think it's great that the language is getting updated. And I also wonder if my teachers were onto something by actually just leaving a big open space for trikonasana and just kind of, you make it your own. I don't want to tell you what to do. You just, you do it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I really feel that they were onto something. And when you look at Ashtanga, you're supposed to learn Mysore style first Mm -hmm. and establish that connection with the teacher and with your own body. So you're working with the teacher and you figure out what your trikonasana is for you. And so when you go into the class and they call trikonasana and you put your hand on your shin, they completely know why you're putting your hand on your shin. And that's what they told you to do. And there's no more words that need to be said. Mm-hmm. But what we're doing is putting, you know, prioritizing lead classes, not everyone, but a lot of people are prioritizing lead classes. So when you do that, then, then you have this thing, okay, I've got to give people more cues because I have people show up today who don't know what a triangle is. And mm-hmm. so I need to start giving all of these cues versus, so that's backwards teaching instead mm-hmm. of, okay, come to my store class. Let me teach you what a triangle is. And then when you come to class, I say trikonasana and you put your hand wherever, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. I really, there's some beautiful things about Ashtanga that I think we need to go back to, really. <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that, that interesting space of the, 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 sacred, the sacredness of the role of the teacher and how that teacher can play in, in you know, empowering the student. I was, just, I was just talking about that to the students today about how, you know, there's this, there's this interesting space between the authority of the teacher and the agency of the student. And the teacher needs to have the authority in the room, otherwise it's anarchy. And yet the teacher cannot, um, uh, you know, usurp the authority and agency of the student. So how does the teacher show up in a way to create a space for the student to discover their own agency? And I think at the very least, you know, non-hierarchical language is kind of like the low end of the, of the, the spectrum in that regard. What other, what other, as a teacher, as a student yourself, what other things pop into your mind when you're thinking about how to give the, the create space for the students to reclaim their, reclaim their agency in the space of the, you know, the authority of the teacher? Well, I want to speak to something you said, because it's like a reoccurring thing, um, and I'm not saying that you, you are saying this, but there's this idea that there's going to be like, shenanigans and mayhem and foolishness if the teacher doesn't like you know Mm -hmm. step into this place of authority but I think about it like this like the students are coming to us because they they need help and they need some assistance and they they want to learn so because of that the teacher is always going to have some authority and there's going to be some respect level because in this exchange of learning, the student is coming to you because you they believe you know mm-hmm. a little bit more than they know about, about you know, the subject of yoga. So 
I don't know. I don't think it'll get crazy because the student really does want to learn. And honestly, I've seen it get crazy even in room. Crazy. That's not even the word. I've seen students like be like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. Well, well, such and such said, well, even in rooms where the teachers are very, you know, authoritative. So that type of thing is just always going to be there. But I really believe that the students are coming in to learn. And because they're coming in to, to learn, they are going to defer mm-hmm. to our, our knowledge um, when they show up. And then during that phase, when they're deferring to our knowledge, it's our job to start to create this relationship with them. Right. So as they start to grow in their knowledge, because they have this relationship with us and this respect for the relationship, that they are going to be less likely to, um, you know, have mayhem and foolishness. But on the flip side of that, you know, that mayhem and foolishness is also a part of the learning. Um, I've read so many, you know, books of people who studied with um, gurus in India, and the students ask, questions and they say stuff like I, I don't want to be your student anymore I found this teacher over here who can who can do more and who can teach me more and, and and they they have these conversations with their teacher and then if you look at the Gita I mean goodness you've got God driving a chariot and then you've got Arjuna who's like but what about but what about but what about I'm not sure but what about but 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 right so this is part of the teacher-student relationship and like, you know, I challenge myself to like not see it as like a challenge to my quote unquote authority or a bad thing that the student is asking questions and wanting to know. And it's a good thing that they are actually communicating with us. Absolutely. Because a lot of times they don't even feel safe. So if a mm-hmm. student is standing there with you going, yeah, Kino, uh, I don't want to do this. Like there's a little bit of of like safety there that they feel they can do that versus like just holding all that in mm-hmm. and quitting, you know. So yeah. I think you know there's some um, acknowledgement of the fact that we've created a space where they feel safe enough to be like, mm, no. <laughs> to us, I love about that. Yeah. yeah, I love that. I think that's awesome, and I think that there's yeah, that's so awesome. I, you know, it was just. Communicating to the students about, hey, you can talk to me if something's going on. Please tell me, and to create that space that that makes it seem well. Me as the role of the teacher, I may make a suggestion; it might not work for you, and it's this is a safe space for you to say no. And then that's a way to encourage the students, the students' agency. Sometimes for me, when I think about the authority of the teacher, it's also like holding space for the students to experience what they experience. And at the same time, there's like a group energy, a group dynamic. So I, I sometimes occasionally get someone who comes into the room and it is just almost there to perform. And like they come in and then they like want to show me all their advanced poses. And, you know, and I'm te- if it's a traditional Ashtanga class, I'm like, okay, well, that's not really appropriate here. Like, can we just stick to the series? And then, you know, I hate that. I hate to have to go up to someone and say, you know, would you mind? Because what happens, what I've noticed sometimes happens is then there's one person that's not following the series in a room, then suddenly it's like a virus and everyone's like, I'm also going to kick up in a handstand here and I'm going to do this in there. And kind of like, okay, let's find a happy medium where you get to keep your joy. And at the same time, we don't have the person that's like two weeks into the practice throwing themselves upside down in an unsafe uh, environment. And so that's like an interesting, you know, negotiation. And I've spent, I feel like I've spent a good amount of time almost like analyzing the psychology of how best to interact with each student. So this student, maybe uh, they like, they love hand sign. It's their joy. Let me figure out a way that they can keep it. This student should absolutely not be trying that because they have a herniated disc in their neck, but then they see that student and then they want to try it. So I need to go over and explain in a way that like, Hey, remember you were at the chiropractor yesterday. So maybe we don't throw ourselves upside down just yet. Uh, but soon one day, if you heal the neck, we can try, you know, so we play these like, roles of, I want to support you in your journey. And and I think it's a really important conversation, particularly in Ashtanga, to have this triangulation between authority and agency, you know, because so there are, there are some yoga students and just some people in the world. And I've definitely been down that road. They're so willing to give up their agency. 
you know, they just, they're willing, like the teacher says, jump, they jump. The teacher says, do this, they do this. And so it, it, this is a something that I think the, the yoga practice as a world, you know, is, is grappling with, but particularly in Ashtanga, where, you know, trying to enter this space of rehabilitating lineage from the harms that have been committed by, you know, Patavi Joyce and other teachers in positions of power that may have not acknowledged that and maybe have abused power themselves. So, so where do we sit now? Like in terms of, in terms of yourself, like I love where you're taking the Ashtanga practice and kind of, where do you feel that you sit within, like within all of that, within of the post lineage space of the yoga world and the deconstruction of the guru model and the representation of, you know, practice in a more inclusive and accessible space. That's a lot. I feel like I needed to write down because I had all <laughs> these things coming through my head. Okay. What's the first thing? Okay. All right. So one thing I wanted to talk about, you know, sometimes when I see someone now, especially with some of the training I've had, when I see somebody coming in and immediately doing like lots of handstanding and stuff like that, I almost feel, ask myself, you know, is it a trauma response? This idea that I've got to prove how great and amazing I am so that that makes so that I'm safe. Right. Because if they see me as being great and amazing, then they'll love me and they will respect me and they'll appreciate me. And this maybe there's this idea of needing to be, you know, safe in the body and to be accepted in some way. And sometimes it's not that, but, you know, it's a conversation, I think, to have with the student and probably not at that moment in the room with everybody else <laughs> because mm-hmm. in a MISO room, we can hear everything mm-hmm. that all the private conversations everyone <laughs> can hear. So it, it might be worth like letting that person do that, whatever. And then having a little conversation with them later about, you know, their handstanding and, 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 and why they feel they're doing it and what, where it's coming from and what our thoughts are about it. And I think from having that open dialogue and not doing it in the middle of the room, I think that people might get beyond that reptilian brain and start to kind of go to the higher brain and let the guard down and listen to us and our ideas around it. They may be a little bit more open to it. Cease. Second, what was the second thing I wanted to speak to? Oh my goodness, I forgot. Okay, and then it was, um, oh yes. Um, so I think a lot of the, some of the hierarchical stuff I think that's going on in yoga is a misinterpretation and a misunderstanding of the ancient teachings of, of yoga. Um, You know, so you read in books, things like, you know, you should trust your guru and do what your guru says and all of this. And I think a lot of people take that a little bit too literally. Again, going back to, you know, the Gita, you know, this idea of an amazing teacher, which is, you know, Krishna. And then you've got Arjuna. And even here, there's still this intense questioning of that teacher, even though he, Arjuna, I mean, loves Krishna, respects Krishna in every way, um, you know, set at Krishna's feet, waiting for him, mm-hmm. you know, all these things he did that was reverence, wanted Krishna to be with him instead of Krishna's army, all of this stuff to show how reverential he was as a student, but yet, had all these questions. And I think that in that culture, there is this idea that you're coming with a seeker's mind Mm -hmm. when you ask the question. So even though you have that seeker's mind, you're still, um, you're still doing what the guru says, because that's still part of that whole relationship is that seeker's mind. And But a lot of times in the West, when we come with questions, it's this like, I need to prove, like you said, I need to prove that I, what I know to Mm -hmm. you and I need to prove you wrong. And, and, and it's not that true seekers mind. And then, so the opposite of that is, well, I'm just going to 
bow down and do what I'm told and put this person up on a pedestal, which also, from what I understand from my Indian teachers is not what they were asking for either. So I think a lot of this comes from our way of trying to interpret what we see in another culture and the teachings of another culture without really understanding that culture. And, you know, from what I see from that culture, there is this culture of the seeker's mind and asking questions and, and, and it's seen as being okay. I mean, debates were a big part mm-hmm. of um, the learning. You would, you know, debate a teacher and y'all would go back and forth. You know, the teacher would go back and forth in ancient India. And then whoever won, that the one who lost becomes that teacher's student. Like there was this <laughs> culture of debating and asking and learning and seeking. And I think we've just somehow um, distorted it. Mm-hmm. And, and with our own misunderstanding of it, because, you know, from the West, we have this mind that comes from um, a religious mind. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but this, this bad, good mind. And good means I, I'm a good little girl and I just be quiet and I do whatever the teacher says. And that's what it means to be good. And a bad student is someone who asks questions and, and doesn't do what they're supposed to do. And, and bad, good, bad, good. But it's there's so much gray in, you know, the Indian culture. And um, like they even have like the moon lineages, which is like all about being very gray, the gray area, the people from the moon lineages. Um, And so it's like, I think we've just misinterpreted, interpreted what it really means to have a relationship and a connection with the teacher. It doesn't mean doing everything they say um, all the time. And then let's see, third, you asked about post-lineage. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a post-lineage person. I really also still believe that we have misinterpreted what it means to be a part of a lineage. I don't think it ever meant that you do everything to the letter in exactly the same way as the teacher, um, it's just this transmission stream of the knowledge. And I still think that as a student, we were expected to take this information on into the future. And I think that when you do that, you're still a part of a lineage. You know, I, even though I use, you know, chairs and all this stuff, I still see myself as an Ashangi and as much of an Ashangi as I was when I was, you know, grabbing my, you know, ankles in a back bend, I mean, just as much as one, you know, and um, I still feel that the way that I teach is still in line with my understanding of the uh, the knowledge of Ashtanga and the lineage. And again, I just feel like there's been this misinterpretation of, of, of what it is and what it means to have parampara and a teacher-student guru-shisha relationship. Such really good points. And there's there's like so much we can dive into, right? So there's this question of, you know, privileged Westerners going to India and taking a practice and then, and then bringing the practice back and teaching it to primarily other privileged Westerners who then are appropriating that in their own worldview. And sometimes, you know, with a really... With, with, a, with a really good intention of just trying to, you know, spread the good of yoga out there. And then it gets filtered through this lens of the, you know, the, the paradigm with which many, you know, Westerners operate from, which is a different paradigm from the traditional origin culture of India. So I think that's a really, really good point. And this idea of this dichotomous kind of good and bad separation of let me be a good student, I have to do everything the guru says versus uh, you know, understanding that questioning is good and questioning is part of your awakening process. And we want to welcome questions. And at the same time, that that is a different paradigm than just, you know, 
debate and picking things apart, right? So you said the seeker's mind, and this is also, you know, Swadhyaya, this sort of spiritual self-inquiry, which includes the paradigm with which we study texts and the paradigm with which we engage and study with the teacher is not, you know, how can I disprove this? So it's kind of like the opposite of, you know, deconstructivism. It's kind of this different mindset of how is it that, that, that this is, that this is enabling my awakening? And then engage on that level, which is really cool. Um, And without the questioning, that's where a lot of the spiritual bypassing happens. mm -hmm. Right. Instead of questioning, we just suppress it. It comes up, it bubbles up and we just suppress it. And, you know, love and light only, good vibes only. And we just suppress it. And then when we suppress it, then we are suppressing the, the, the yogic journey. Because again, I mean, it clearly states right before the eight limbs gets listed in chapter two, that they're to help us find wisdom and discernment. Mm -hmm. So that means that we have to be questioning and asking what is ahimsa and okay, how can I do the least amount of harm? And was that a lie I told, but was it a lie that needed to be told? And like all of these things have to be happening in order for us to gain discernment. So if we're in a relationship um, with a teacher and we're not going through this process and we're just squelching it and, 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 and suppressing it, then that, that process of finding discernment and wisdom is arrested. Mm-hmm. It's not happening. It may as well just be, I don't know, an empty, empty, like, religion, like going to church and you'd go just because on Sunday, that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And you just go every Sunday because that's what you do. There's nothing happening, no transformation. This is what I do. And it just becomes another empty part of our lives. And yoga is not supposed to make us you know, empty in that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, there's an interesting part of the discussion about, about, you know, the rejection of, of lineage and the rejection of you know, the gurus and, you know, uh, maybe the rejection is actually about uh, a relearning, you know, rather than rejecting. It's the encouragement of, hey, let's not throw this out. First of all, who are you to throw it out? You know, some of the dialogue that's being presented is primarily, you know, Western individuals who are privileged and, you know, came across the yoga and it did something for them. But then now they're you know, uh, rebelling against the throw out the yoga sutras because they're, you know, they're, they're, they critique them on these various levels and oh don't God, read that, that because discussion is crazy. It's, yeah. So this is, there's people who don't know, there's this whole weird kind of critical discussion saying that the yoga sutras are part of the colonial mindset. So we shouldn't read them anymore. And that anything that encourages a moral and ethical code is, is, is being used by people in positions of power to oppress others. And so we should throw out the yoga sutras and, you know, reject all of the lineages and all of that. And it's like, when I, when I, when I hear that argument, I'm like, wait a minute, did you actually go and study this culture? You know, this is, uh, for me, it reeks of another form of whitewashing where we take, you know, we, 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 we take, we pick and choose and we're like, well, I like the asanas. So I'm going to keep those. Oh, all of this stuff where it tells me that I have to do good in the world and tell the truth and, you know, care for other people. And I need to practice discernment and wisdom. Well, that I'm just going to throw all of that out and, and just let me be free myself. And so, uh, you know, were you engaged with anyone in that conversation or did that Oh, I did a whole post on it because I saw someone, I saw that stuff when it started, like the idea that, you know, when the British came, they saw the Yoga Sutras and they saw that in their mind, the Yamas equal 10 commandments and they used that to control people. I mean, and I mean, it's like, um, yeah, that, that's horrible, but that doesn't mean that we throw the book out because someone took it and used it the wrong way. You know, it's like a hammer. Like I can use a hammer to, you know, put nails in the wall. And this is amazing tool that I can build a house with. Or I can be like, well, let's throw hammers out all together because this one person took a hammer and used it on a, another human being instead of using it to nail, put a nail on the wall. Like we don't, we don't do that. People die all the time from car accidents, flying in planes, you know, so many different things. Taking selfies. 
taking selfies, being in the water, but we're not like, okay, water is bad. We have to stop drinking it. We must stop showering. Somebody died. Um, You know, we don't do that. And it's like, when we have this all or nothing attitude, I think that is a moment where we need to sit with the idea of why, why are we so bent on throwing something completely out when we don't do that with 99% of the things Mm -hmm. in our life, we don't do that. And then when we talk about, again, I know I keep talking about the Gita and I wish more people were into it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the book that's more for householders than the yoga ever was. Um, But in the Gita, every single character in there, you can say was flawed or had something going on or that someone could look at and see as having a flaw. They all did. Yet this book has stood the test of time. And it's a book that people use to guide their lives because they're like, wow, if this person who was like half God (laughs) can, you know, rise up and do these amazing things and live their life, then, you know, I can too. And what can I learn from this? You know, and again, from that culture, it's like they understood that the guru is a human, mm-hmm. <laughs> is a human at the end of the day. And again, it's that misunderstanding of, of not having the, the seeker's mind and not bringing in the wisdom and the discernment mm-hmm. when we work with a guru. And yeah, it's like that black and white stuff is not a part mm-hmm. of the, the, the Indian culture. Or originally, yeah. it was not. That's, that's our stuff. <laughs> I love that you're encouraging people to read the Gita. You know, when I first went to India, I asked my teacher, you know, what philosophy books should I read? Should I read the Yoga Sutra? Should I read the Upanishads? You know, these wonderful, fanciful ideas. Let me study these like big books that will hold the mystery of life, you know? And my teacher looked at me and was like, you read Gita? And I said, I said, yeah, yeah, I read it. I read it. You really read Gita? Uh, no, I didn't really read it. So then I, you know, so this is what he recommended. He really recommended everyone to start there. And, you know, for anyone that's unfamiliar with it, it's that this, it's this, it's this prescient knowledge that happens on the eve of a great battle. And one of the uh, sort of commentaries that I read, I can't remember which one it's from, kind of presented uh, the idea that it's, it's, as you mentioned, most appropriate for everyone who's a householder or living in the world, because we wake up in the morning and we engage with the world. We're not renunciates. We don't disengage. So it's like each day we're standing on the battlefield, you know, and each day we're making the choices of what we do. And if we're, if we're going to follow the path of liberation, or if we're going to follow the path of sufferings, we make that choice and stand on that battlefield. It's us on that battlefield every single day over and over again. And another interesting thing about the Gita is that Arjuna fights, you know, his whole depression is uh, you know, where, where he says, um, you know, to Krishna, Nayotsya, like, I will not fight. Like, no, I don't do it. I quit. Essentially, get yourself another hero, my friend Krishna. I like, I won't do it. He, he says, I will not fight. He sits and he becomes silent. So he quits. So it's like even more than that. And it's Krishna. So he's like, get up and, and fight. And he just keeps saying, get up and fight, get up and fight, get up and fight, which you know, if you say that in our contemporary world, you know, fight for this, fight for that. The response is, oh, why are you so angry? Oh, why don't you just like breathe? Aren't you a yogi? Why don't you calm down? Why don't you be more peaceful? And, you know, there are times when it's not appropriate to just like lie down and take it. There are, there are totally times when, you know, a boundary has been crossed or, harm has been done as some an agreement has been broken and you need to say like, no, this is not acceptable. And I think you're right about the spiritual bypassing coming from a lack of discernment and perhaps a lack of education also about what yoga actually is, you know? And, you know, no action is an action. Like that's not exactly what the Gita says, but basically in there, Krishna, mm-hmm let's argue to know that no action is an action. So then if I am saying that I'm on the yogic path, then I ask myself, right? This is why the inquiry has to happen. Then I ask myself, by taking this no action right here, 
what are the consequences? Right? The, it, the, we have to have that, you know, that's that questioning, like by taking no action, what are the consequences? Not just for myself, but what is the consequences for the other person, the people for whom which this is happening? the areas in the world for whom which you know global warming and flooding and all this is happening what happens when i take no action right and then we have to sit with with that so that's what i always say is like yeah no action is an action and you know and are you happy with what may happen by you not taking an action you know, and people get angry about it, but I'm like, oh, okay, so you're cool with what's going on with police brutality and you don't have anything to say about it. Well, people are dying over here. And for every second that we don't do anything, we don't say anything, more people are dying and you're okay with that. Okay, cool. All right. Mm -hmm. And nobody really likes that, but it's like, that's how far I go with it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how far I go with it, that, you know, I think about that. What is the, what is my no action doing? Mm-hmm. What is my no action doing? Right. Absolutely. And it's also a choice. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is something that Krishna says, you know, to Arjuna is not like he says, he says, get up and fight. Or uh, I think the line is something like a fate worse than death will befall you. You know, like, and which means, which is essentially you'll have to live with that you were here and you could have acted and you didn't. And to live with that guilt is like, you spend the whole life with that. I was there and I could have done something and I didn't. And that stays, you know, and it lingers and we might not realize it immediately, but it's in the rear view mirror of our life. And we're evaluating, I stood at that pivotal moment and I chose not to act. I stood, I stood at that pivotal moment when my voice could have aided someone else. I could have done something and I didn't. And, you know, we all have to figure out what that action is for us, right? This is the dharma, like Arjuna's dharma. He was an archer. He needs to, he needs to you know, release his art. That's his dharma. Arjuna cannot also go up and start picking up a sword because he's not trained in sword fighting. He would not succeed in his dharma. Each of us, we have to figure out how is it that we can contribute to that. It's okay. One person's action. Okay. I have a social media. Then we do something on social. Someone else is like, oh, I'm not on social media, but I would like to write letters to my Senator. I would like to, you know, volunteer for this charity that's doing this. Someone else says, you know what? I have actually, uh, I have an old building that is in my family and maybe I can, you know, donate it to a charity or use it for this purpose. So it's like, I feel like some people get pigeonholed into the idea of what action means. So then someone says, oh, I don't feel comfortable posting about it on social media. My social media is really just for my kids. Fine. Don't do it on social media. Find a Dharma that works for you. There's a community out there that's waiting for you to give and and show up. So ask yourself, how can I give according to my Dharma? And this way, I think people can can have a little space of thinking, can be creative and think it doesn't have to look like this. It's not like that. Again, it's just black and white. I'm either angry and on social media and posting X, Y, and Z, or I'm doing nothing. It's like, okay, you have to think again. We need to have discernment and then actually do good because we, because also if, if activism and action doesn't leave the social media platforms and if it's just, you know, a voice out there saying something that doesn't translate into, you know, actionable impacts in our environment, our community, then it's just hollow words all the same. It really is. I just um, posted today. I don't know if you saw it, but I think the NFL is, going to start singing the black national anthem um, okay. <laughs> every game and I was like but that's not what we asked for right uh-huh. we didn't ask for the black national anthem mm-hmm. we asked for equality we asked for inclusion and equity we asked for reparations we asked for you know different bills to be passed we asked for equal pay we asked this is what we asked for mm-hmm. but instead it's like I give you lift every voice and sing, which I love that song, but it's like, that's not what I asked for. It's like, I'm over here and I'm dying. And you're like, would you like to, would you like to sing lift every voice and sing? No, I need CPR. I need a bed that, no, let's just sing lift every voice and sing. No, I, I need mm-hmm. money. I can't pay my bills. I can't do that but can we sing lift every voice and sing? Like it's that type of stuff. When you were talking about stuff that mm-hmm. doesn't really change mm-hmm. the world and the bottom line, like those types of actions. 
That's really interesting to think about. So, well, first of all, let's, let's, let's like unpack that a little bit. So I did not know that, 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 then I didn't, I didn't see it. So thank you for, for sharing that. So I feel like this is a band-aid and this is one of these band-aids where people have misidentified what the problem was. So you have people in positions of power, the sports team owners and sports fans that, you know, um, that, that love their football and had a really strong reaction to, uh, football players protesting, you know, racial and social injustice by taking the knee for the national anthem. And if they were to go into it a little more, actually, this was like something that was researched of how can I protest while being respectful at the same time? And, you know, so then, so then this became this whole thing about, you know, don't you love your country? And, and, and this whole dialogue went on that created a lot of, uh, you know, um, controversy around taking the knee for the national anthem. So it, then this conversation became centered around people's reactions to taking the knee around the national anthem. So, and then the response to that is from the football world is, you know, uh, maybe instead of either normalizing that, maybe, uh, Come, engaging in further discussions about what that actually would mean, where it's coming from, get either giving to various charities, working with politicians to bring issues to the table. Then they're focusing on this, this one thing that's their eyesore, which is these players are not standing up in the national anthem. So let's play a song to make them stand up. And then they're like, check, done, close the door, move on. And this is, this is like a Band-Aid and that doesn't, that doesn't go in deeply. So you know, if you could rewrite it, so if you could rewrite it, what would you have had the football world do? I mean, I think you should, number one, you should let them protest in yeah. the way that they feel they need to do as is their right um, as a, a citizen of America. I mean, it's really interesting what's going on in America right now, because even though... <laughs> The, the, the rights, the quote unquote, quote unquote rights that we had were not that the founding fathers came up with were not for anyone but white males. Let's throw that aside for a moment. <laughs> but they believed in speaking up for themselves and protesting and letting people know when laws, they felt a law was unjust. Um, that was a big part of, you know, America. And so to me, it's very American to take that knee at that moment as a way of saying, hey, we, we do love America. And that's why we need to have this discussion with her. That's why we need to bring awareness to this and what's going on. And this is just a way for us to do that and to bring some attention to it. So to me, quietly putting a knee down on the ground is a beautiful statement. I believe it should just be allowed. And again, going back to that, I'm feeling very uncomfortable um, with this. And instead of taking that as an opportunity to build discernment and wisdom and ask why, um, we want to ban that poor Colin Kaepernick. We want to not let him play. We want to stop it and do lift every voice and sing. And yeah, to me, I just feel that they should just be mm-hmm. allowed to do it. And that America should then, well, why are you taking the knee? What is it? Mm-hmm. Listen. And then hear them out. Listen. And, and really try to do something to change uh, the systemic oppression and the things that we've got going on right now mm-hmm. and really just listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree, definitely. I agree 100%. The other thing that's a, the parallel uh, between the football world and the yoga world is that when a yoga person speaks out on something, very much like when an athlete is speaking out on something, shut up and play. Shut up and do your yoga, you know? You're, you're out of your lane here. You know, why don't you just keep your leg behind your head? I've had so many people say that to me whenever I've spoken out on something. Oh, you're out of your league here. Just go back to putting your leg behind your head. And then, you know, why are you talking about this? You don't, you don't have any authority in this world. And, I, and, and, you know, it's, it's kind of demeaning to think about that. The value of, of an individual is just this physical kind of you know, racehorse uh, performance aspect of, well, wait a minute, you value my physicality, but not me as a being. 
and you're not going to hear me out. Like you'll listen to me when I say, so just speaking for myself, you know, like you'll listen to me when I say, you know, engage your lats and push your shoulders forward to lift up. But if I tell you that, Hey, this is an important issue that I think all yogis should really think about whether it's a a social justice issue or, or any other issue, then immediately someone says, you know, shut up and do yoga. It's like, well, wait a minute. What again, discernment, what is yoga? Is yoga just this physical thing is the value of, of, of a yogi, a yoga practitioner, just their body. And the same thing with the football players, you know, they're human beings. Like that's a, that's a big portion of their life and it's their livelihood, but they're human beings with feelings and thoughts and, you know, the whole, the whole, the whole, the whole beingness. So, you know, when, if you value someone for one thing, I feel like the very least you can do is, is give them the time to, to, to listen and respect their point of view on, on something else. Exactly. Um, so there's these like different stages of, you know, a person's life. I think they call ashrama dharma. Uh, dharma so that's how, how you say mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of times what happens is, again, Westerners trying to mix this idea of being a renunciate um, with also being in the world. And that's why I love the Gita, because the Gita is about how to show up in the world because you're not a re-enunciate. Mm-hmm. If someone is on Instagram <laughs> commenting on somebody's leg behind the head, I'm like 99.9% sure they're probably not a renunciate um, and that they are active in the world. So as people who are active in the world, we are still, even as we're on this yogic journey, contributing to the greater society. So as a yogi or someone who is practicing yoga, it is our, our, our job to, again, look at how we can make a difference in the greater world. Because we are, if someone is on Instagram, they are definitely still interacting with the world. And that comes with the responsibility. Um, and you know, I think a lot of times people are like, again, you have the yoga sutras, and that's why it was used. <laughs> to about uh, colonizers to um, control people because the, the yoga sutras is about samadhi. It's about um, die before you die. Um, let's sit down and uh, get everything nice and right so you never come back here so that you die before you die, right? That's the yoga sutras. And um, even though there's stuff that we can use in our daily life, but that's the yoga sutras. And in there, there is this idea of, of, of renunciation and, you know, especially in that first part of the book and chapter four and all of that. So there is this idea, but it's like people like you're not there yet. Like for, if you're on Instagram talking about my leg behind my head and policing me and then I'm pretty sure you're not um, trying to die before you die just yet. Um, And you're just picking the little, cherry picking the little things that make you feel good. And I'm making you feel uncomfortable by making these statements and you don't like that. It has nothing to do with yoga. So yeah, I think that if we're in the world, we have a responsibility to the world that we're in. And sometimes that means that we open our mouth sometimes as yoga practitioners um, and not just do pretty postures. I really like that. If we're in the world, then we owe a responsibility to that world. There's some elements of that. I really, I love that because you know, we're not, we're not renunciates. We're, we're, we're here. This is the world. We've got to take care of it, you know, and that means taking care of the other people in the world as well and, and, and doing what we can to update the social model. So, so this is deep. This is the work of the practice and there's so much more. So, Jaina, we're both going to be a part of event of an event coming up um, called Exploring Racism as a Spiritual Obstacle. And I'm looking forward to that event. We've got practice and a panel discussion with um, you and me and a team of awesome teachers and thinkers that are going to participate in that. So I just want to invite everyone um, who's listening, if you want more of this type of conversation and a practice, join us for this. It's on um, August 1st. And we'll put the sign up details below so you can you can check that out. Um, Shana, what do you what what's your uh, defi- like what's your not definition, but what's your kind of 
you know, extrapolation of, of, of racism as a spiritual obstacle? You know, do you see racism as a spiritual obstacle? And absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> racism is division. It's, it's division and which is not what yoga is about even in the areas where we use this kind of extraction and extrapolation like the Patanjali, it still is not that type of division. So yes, racism is division. So where there's racism, there definitely cannot be um, any true spirituality. There is, it can't be there. So it's an imperative uh, discussion and reflection for every true spiritual, true spiritual seeker to kind of unpack whatever whatever conscious or unconscious biases leading towards racism are present within our minds. So this is the work we're engaged in. So I just invite everyone to continue and join the dialogue. Meanwhile, Jada, where can everyone find you if they want to practice with you? So if you want to practice with me, find me on Instagram, wellness underscore yogini is my handle. And then you can look up in my bio and find all the things that I'm doing. Um, I tell people I'm international. So like I'm everywhere. So like, you know, if I'm not in your town, then like I'm doing something live. I make it very easy live on Zoom, excuse me, on Zoom. I make it very easy for people to practice with me. And I'm on On Stars every Monday, 930, doing my chair yoga. I love it. Um, So there's always a way to practice with Shana Small. (laughs) Nice. We love you, Shana. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.